0: Welcome to Sacred Realms, a podcast where two rabbis discuss science fiction and fantasy through a Jewish lens. This month's episode is Clash of the Narratives, which is about competing or conflicting narratives. I am Rabbi Lindsay Healy Pollock here again with my colleague Rabbi Andrew Pepperstone.
1: It's great to be here again.
0: And great to be with you. For our 10th episode, we are going to as usual, answer the question of the month, talk about what we've been watching or reading since our last episode. Next, we will turn to our main topic, Clash of the Narratives. And for our final segment from the Geniza, we'll dust off some of our favorites from the past. So for this month's Shayla or since we're talking about competing or conflicting narratives or stories, what was a time when you experienced a conflicting or competing narrative or narratives. And how did you navigate them?
1: Well, I wanted a question that would take us into the theme but not get so fraught with, as you mentioned, darker stories that you know people often have. So I thought of a, a small stakes one is that neither of my parents came from musical households. My mom's mother, was actually profoundly hard of hearing and didn't own records, tapes, CDs, anything, like no music in her house. She had a radio, like that was it. My dad's side of the family also, just not musical. I cannot remember if they had a record player. So my parents both like music, but were not ever raised to be good singers, or were not singers. So the narrative was that in my family that we're not good singers and I was raised with that narrative. And so I don't carry a tune effortlessly. It's hard. So I've worked on my singing, taking, I've taken voice lessons, speech lessons, and trying to create my own narrative where actually, Oh, I actually, I am a decent singer and I can lead services and I could even sing and even lead people in singing as far as my abilities. Let me do so. So created my own counter narrative to my families were not very good singers so i'm a decent i'm not a bad singer and when i get complimented on my singing which is very infrequent it goes right to my head every time (laughs) right to my head so that's my counter narrative to my earlier competing narrative how about you
0: yeah so What came up for me was a story that I was telling someone recently, and we were talking about sibling rivalry or perceptions among siblings about preferential treatment by parents. And I don't feel as an adult that there was preferential treatment necessarily, but in the classic case of Kids having different interpretations of the same events in the same household. You know, my, my siblings and I, I think at one point, were like, oh, yeah, you know, somebody else is the favorite. You know, you had favorites, and my parents were like, okay, who do you all think is the favorite? At this point, I was probably in college, and then my, my siblings were a little bit younger than me, so they were still at home. And, you know, I think I said it was my younger sister who's the third child. She said it was me and I don't remember what my brother said. All of us concluded that nobody thought that the middle child, my brother was the favorite, but it was interesting to see that we all had a different take on things coming from our own, living in the same household, having similar experiences and how we interpreted events or you know certain actions, let's say on the part of our parents as being indicative of some kind of preference for that child. When actually what was really going on was, we're all different people who need different things. And of course there's the interaction that comes up, you know, among siblings and what happens with the first one does to some degree set the tone for things later. You know, what people say, realize, oh, this worked or didn't with this child is that applicable to the situation if if that might arise with another kid i understand that you know at as a parent and we didn't totally it was not a serious accusation on the part of my siblings and myself that there was a strong preference but just kind of funny that everyone kind of had a different version of the story of well it obviously is so and so because of the following
1: yeah right everyone has evidence and every kid also has different parents within one family you had your parents at you know the beginning and then your brother had them a bit older your sister a bit older with different kids they're you know my parents same way we're the same with our kids I think it was Jefferson said the equal treatment of others is the most inequitable treatment of all. No kid's going to get the exact same treatment because that would be ridiculous. Every kid needs something different. Uh, Yeah. I just,
0: I just a video the other day from like an Instagram account that I follow or someone who's, a comedian and she was talking about the experience of being at home with her holidays with like three siblings and it was like her she's like i'm the older sibling so i'm making a menu for all of our holiday meals and then there was the younger one was like i'm the younger sibling so you know i just want a hug and then the the, the middle sibling would be like i'm the middle sibling and then it would just cut off in the middle of the sentence before they could even finish (laughs) highly highly accurate it's about right yeah so well the thing is why i didn't remember what my brother said my sister couldn't have said that she herself was the favorite although maybe that would have been on brand (laughs) if my siblings are, are listening which they're definitely not if anyone in the family would have claimed themselves as being the favorite it would have been her but i don't think that she did so i knew i knew that no one chose him and she couldn't have chosen herself so therefore she must have said it was me Four middle siblings. So I, I truly do not remember what he said. I'm
1: only one of two, as is my wife. So we actually have no experience with families of three. yeah, but we have one now. And we definitely mm. see in our middle kid, you know, some classic middle kid things. Sometimes they're louder or or quieter. Mm-hmm. They're never the same volume. Quieter because maybe they gave up or louder because they have not yet given up and. Still feel ignored and like, pay attention to me. Yeah. But we love all of our kids differently.
0: And definitely. And for those of you listening, you can drop us an email with your answer to this month's question. When have you experienced competing narratives? You can send it to us at sacredrealmspodcast at gmail.com. Okay, so now on to what have we been watching or reading or otherwise consuming lately?
1: Okay, so I just got off of COVID isolation. I've had a lot of time to watch things in the past week. And on your recommendation, I watched, I began and then finished a show called Midnight Mass, which was very interesting. I guess horror is a subset of fantasy and science fiction.
0: Yeah, I feel like it was a hybrid.
1: It was. It was interesting. It is a six-episode limited series on Netflix about a sleepy, declining fishing village, vaguely East Coast. Some said Virginia. Others said New England.
0: I I thought it was Maine. That could be Maine. I just assumed Maine. I don't know. Maybe that's not... It could be
1: Maine. Oh, yeah. Maine totally fits. Someone said that it felt like it was based on a a particular town off the coast of Virginia. It it didn't really matter so much. And basically, the priest has gone on a a tour and a young priest comes in and tells the town that their old Monsignor, who they all knew had dementia, is on the mainland recovering and he is there to fill in for a little while. And we also opened with one of the town's prodigal sons coming out of jail for four years of a vehicular manslaughter verdict. You see this town go through a religious revival while there's strange things happening. It was a fascinating look at rationalism versus faith and the role faith can play, the way that we can deal with things that are happening by sort of applying the scriptural verses at them to give them new frames or new context that make it all okay. I thought it was very good. I'm not usually a horror fan, but that was worth watching. So I'm glad you recommended it.
0: Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I can just jump in here because that's pretty much the only thing that I have finished watching re- recently or gotten made any significant progress on. Yeah. I, I also agree. I tend not to be much of a horror fan in general and this felt like it was less about right the blood and guts and gore i mean there's a little bit of you know stuff that you see in the end but it's primarily not about that and for me you know i always love the interweaving of religious themes with sci-fi and fantasy mystery kinds of themes you know there's a lot of engagement in some of these genres with characters that come out of religious traditions so not to spoil it for for anyone but there's at least the people are responding to a particular entity as an angel and it does have some of the features that we might associate with certain biblical passages describing angels but then interprets that in a different way or like if you didn't have that kind of lens how might you see this being or this creature is an interesting question and yeah, Some different overlapping aspects of the, the varying mythologies between biblical tradition and other kinds of folk stories and storytelling as they've evolved over time and mashing those up in an interesting way. And also it was a well done show in general, had some very interesting characters, Riley, the prodigal son, and like the other, the, the other woman who they had been friends as kids and they reconnect back on this island as they've come back as adults and they're trying to figure out and understand what's going on and kind of navigate their life there.
1: The scene of her, Aaron and Riley talking on the couch about what happens when you die, which they do in two different segments. That was Yisker sermon level material. I want to go back and get a transcript. Because Erin in particular, she expresses a theology of monism where everything is one very well. They really explored, they really gave a nice, concise explanation to that theology, which you don't usually see on television or any size screen
0: yeah I remember that more with the second one yes it was And I wanted to go back and like look at well how did what did she say the first time when they first have that conversation and then you see this reprise of it I think the content is different so I I wanted to go back and and look at what she had said before and then what she says because I I totally agree with you it was like such a beautiful articulation I was like wow someone on that writing staff (laughs) did an amazing job with this
1: Yeah, and then they were all very three-dimensional characters, each interesting. It was very interesting. I had no problem plowing through it in my isolation. I've watched a couple other things lately. I did see on the big screen Godzilla Minus One, which was the Japanese version of a new Godzilla origin story, hence Godzilla Minus One in honor of the Godzilla movie's 70th anniversary, because it came out in 53, originally, right after World War II. Within five years of the nuclear bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they made a movie dealing with radiation and how it creates a monster that destroys Tokyo. I also really came away with a strong sense, have you seen Spirited Away?, Lindsay?
0: I have, it's been a long time. So I'd like to go back and watch it again.
1: So it definitely made me feel much more that Godzilla really came out of that like river spirit, but the river got polluted. Now the spirit is also ill or broken or has a malaise. It very much gave me human beings unleashing nuclear re- radiation creates Godzilla. I really got that spirited away connection that I did, that I had not had before. The feeling how much Godzilla is rooted in Japanese culture. It's very interesting. Um, good movie. Really, really good. Very true to post-World War II life in Tokyo, uh, which was horrible. The main characters are... A man and a woman and a child that they happen to be given, you know, after Tokyo was destroyed after World War II. So, highly recommended. And I've been watching Monarch Legacy of Monsters, an Apple TV series about the more recent Godzilla King Kong movies. And It's about the two children of one of the main scientists behind Monarch, which is the agency that studies them. And I wish it had more monsters. But it's good. I'll watch it. I watched Invincible... First half, which is an Amazon Prime superhero animated series, not for children, not for children. It's a very different take on superheroes, and this season in particular about legacy that you inherit and the obligations that legacy puts on people to do what is expected of them, and if they push back against that, what are the consequences, and how far they're going to push against, you know, the weight of that legacy. I did watch Rebel Moon. Rebel Moon is Zack Snyder's Star Wars script that Disney rejected, that Netflix made into a two movie series anyway. So it definitely is Star Wars E. And it's about a big empire exploiting planets for their resources, people are getting upset and forming a rebellion. So, you know, Rebels Against the Empire. There are some flaming swords, but they're not like lightsabers, and there certainly are Star Wars esque moments. I didn't think it was that bad, so it had some interesting stuff.
0: That's very different than where you seem to be landing when we last spoke. When you it, yes. had stopped watching it. Yes, so. I had
1: stopped. I, I I plowed through, and I it's very Zack Snyder. He's known for intense slow mo. In certain action scenes, okay. we really kind of get a sense of heightened action and people looking very intense, doing very intense things, but very slowly. So, you know, very Zack Snyder in that sense. Okay. I don't know. I don't think it, it wasn't terrible. It wasn't the best thing ever. The critique I heard was when Star Wars came out, it was also a mishmash of various elements. So how was this any different? I'm like,
0: that's yeah, a fair,
1: that's a fair critique of the critics. I will give it a little more of a fair shake. So I watched it and it it was entertaining. I'll say that. Sure. So, but that's all I've been watching lately.
0: A friend of mine had recommended a, a comic series that I think involves Norse deities. So that sounded cool. So I might check that out and I don't remember what it's called, but maybe I will start reading that and cool. can report on that next episode.
1: Well, one more cool thing though. I'm watching What If the The Marvel series season two. And there's a completely new character set in the land of the Hodashone and the Onondaga. It is set after Columbus hits the West Indies with Spanish exploration hitting North America, in particular the Northeast, and its conquistadors encountering the Hodashone. And they have this legend of this forbidden lake near them because that's where one of the infinity stones has landed after in this other timeline asgard was destroyed in ragnarok and Kahori, this new marvel superhero she basically gets sucked into this vortex by the power stone everyone who's there basically had been imbued with power stone level energy she in particular got a lot of it and she basically leads people back to her world to fight off the conquistadors and it's cool. The whole thing was in either Mohican or Spanish. No English in the whole episode, which was really cool. And they used Mohawk historians and scholars and linguists to help them write and animate and illustrate in detail the whole thing. So it was all true to the time period, the culture. Really, really enjoyed that. That was definitely a, a fantasy sci-fi highlight. It was something going back to Native American indigenous cultures and imagining, well, what if that happened there?
0: Yeah, that sounds really interesting. All right. So let's talk
1: about this main topic, Clash of the Narratives. Riffing off, of course, on Clash of the Titans, the early 80s version, not the Liam Neeson remake. So what do we mean by conflicting or competing narratives? In short, whenever there's different accounts or different interpretations of the same event, or maybe it's, we're hearing two different narratives that are parts of the same but larger story, each with a different viewpoint or different version of the same story, whatever it might be that leads to a divergent understanding of what happened or the meaning of what happened. And all that might come out of that in terms of how do you react to what happened or what our purpose is based on whatever happened. And those divergences might come from different experiences, different motives, biases, different perspectives. And when they collide, they can lead to conflict, or I guess that's the worst case scenario, or they could lead to a more complex understanding of the event, the idea, whatever it might be. But when one narrative becomes supreme, it can reframe the other as inauthentic or fake or evil or perverse. And then how does that minority view you know, respond to then the widely accepted narrative? And then how do those two narratives then have friction or even conflict again? And in any one thing, is is, is reality actually binary? Is it this or that? Must one be true for the other to be false? Can they be true for some false for others? Are they part of some larger composite? And all of those questions are what, you know, we often see in a lot of different, both faith traditions and a lot of sci-fi and fantasy. Any initial thoughts on just like this, like the topic in general?
0: Yeah, I mean, you did a good job covering, I think a lot of what we had been talking about, but just to kind of pick back up on... The last little comment that you made there that, oh, you see that engagement with multiple narratives as being a part of various faith traditions, that I think is not necessarily the way that people see it and not necessarily the way that people within various faith traditions understand themselves, but is a part of how we've been thinking and talking about the Jewish understanding and story in a lot of ways. And I think we're going to see that as we turn to looking at some of the competing and conflicting narratives that we see in the jewish tradition and just what's coming up to me right now and i think we'll come around to and can talk about this a bit more judaism might have a greater tolerance for conflicting and competing narratives being preserved inside the tradition because it is less of a system that is focused on belief as the primary defining element. When you need to define a theology, it's a lot harder to figure out what to do with competing and conflicting narratives. If you're going to say that the test of whether or not you belong is do you believe in our premises as a tradition, then you need to have at least some agreement about what those are. And so I think Judaism having less of a a focus on belief over other markers of being a part of it, behaving, belonging, being some of them, Mm -hmm. that that has allowed for more flexibility and, and fluidity.
1: For me, the book in the Hebrew Bible that is the most conflicting narrative, with a lot of other theologies that you see in the Bible, and there are definitely multiple theologies in the Bible, Hebrew Bible, of course, is what I mean specifically, is the book of Job. book of Deuteronomy is, you do the right thing, you get a reward. You do the bad thing, you get punished. Very nice and tidy reward and punishment as the rabbis say in Hebrew. And then you have the book of Job, which is sometimes, that is not so simple because we, the privileged audience of the book of Job, know that Job did nothing and yet suffers. And his friends will try to explain his suffering and he will maintain his innocence and his lack of deserving it. And then God basically shows up and says, shut up. And Job says, yes, sir. Or that's one way to read it. It's a little bit simple. Harold Kushner's take on it is that God says to Job, "The world is a a, a dynamic and changing place, and people have free will, and that's just the way it is." And then Job says, "Got it." That's a better take. That's my take. That's my take on Kushner's take on Job, anyway. But if not for Job saying that theology is not simple, I don't think the Hebrew Bible would work for me. So I crucially re- rely on the conflicting narratives of Deuteronomy and Job which are in the canon I think for mm-hmm. that reason because there is no one belief no one canonical theology
0: that's interesting leaving things where you just left them with the book of Job which is not does not feel <laughs> particularly satisfying to me I'm like God basically you know is approached by Hasatan the accuser and says hey can I you know mess with your buddy Job and God is like okay sure that does not leave me with warm and fuzzy feelings about. Oh no! You know, oh no! No,
1: it is not. Like, it, it, it is no God I, is. I'm
0: God. like, you know, this is not. This is not a.
1: No, God's kind of a dick. I mean, it, it's is it, kind it, of a dick. It's a very problematic text, but I love that it was included in the canon because mm. whoever put in the canon saying sometimes it is not fair and sometimes God feels like a dick.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Even I though mean, Kushner
1: has way uh, to read the ending that is, I think, very hopeful. Right. Job's experience is horrible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Job's experience is horrible. Trying to understand like the complexity of what's going on behind the scenes, like on the, you know, cosmic levels is very difficult. What I feel is very similar to what you're saying, which is, you know, I'm not just fixating on particular books, but I would say for me, like the inclusion of wisdom literature, like Mm. the books that I think I did a series about this for my shul a couple years ago where we read Kohelet, Proverbs, Mishle, and and Job, or significant parts of them, and Job has some of the most beautiful moving poetic passages in the entire Hebrew Bible, where it really gets to this like, you cannot even process and handle the greater reality that is beyond the experience, the human experience. That's what I find compelling and moving, Mm -hmm. but this The story of how it is that Job gets tested is still very theologically problematic to me. The choice to include in the canon all of these different voices and to have them coexist together is in and of itself meaningful and it gives you possible options. It, It communicates, I think, to me that there is no one one correct way to think about this that we have a variety of different reflections of people's experiences different ideas that we can use as we relate to and reflect on what our own theology might be Mm -hmm. um of course the rabbis you know extend this by At times, you know, at times I think they really do try to harmonize everything, at least within the Torah, and make it all play together. they will find conflicting passages, and it's like, well, here it says this, and here it says this, so how can it possibly, how can that possibly be the case? And they'll try to come up with a way to harmonize those conflicting stories or versions of things.
1: Um, So
0: to some degree, that's like trying to get rid of the competing narrative.
1: That's internal to the Hebrew Bible itself.
0: It's internal to the, particularly the Torah.
1: So one layer out, and we'll come back to this when we talk about Midrash in in a a moment or so, is that, fine, you've got like, you know, several rabbis grappling with a particular conflict in the text. And they they may have like, you know, four or five solutions to that disharmony and the way how they they interpret it. But then you've got four or five solutions. I don't need to harmonize those. At least I don't think that we do, but some people do feel the need to harmonize even those. That's not the point for me, because that puts all of the oral Torah in the same needs to be harmonized category as the way people view the written Torah. They're unwilling to let those narratives be in conflict or just have just be different versions of a narrative. They have to all make sense. They have to all be coherent. I'm like, but do they? Because they probably can't, and nor was that probably the author's intention was to create, you know, eight things that sound different, but they're actually the same. That's not I think what they're going for either. But I've met people who want to harmonize everything, which I think is, a, yeah. strange, a very strange desired. I want to harmonize everything. Right.
0: I agree with you. I I agree that the intention, most likely the authors and or editors of the Talmud, let's say, and leaving open multiple interpretations, particular, you know, things that don't have a bearing on halakhic practice or actual observance, I think they they leave it unintentionally. They leave it intentionally unplaced. And so I agree with you in response to those people. But at the same time, I also understand how uncomfortable it can be for people to sit with that lack of harmonization. And I also wonder, you know, that tendency, does that only come under the influence of surrounding cultures that place importance on harmonization and making things make logical sense?
1: Here's an interesting possibility. Judaism has existed when not in its own cultural context within two larger cultural contexts, one Christian one Muslim. Islam is far closer culturally to Judaism in that it has a very clear sense of, this is the written scripture, we have lots of oral interpretation and we have lots of sages interpreting, what does the writ mean in this place, this time for this individual person? Whereas in Christianity, it was much more, what is the one true meaning? What is the one narrative story that we're all going to get behind? And that maybe Judaism in each of those places, I think you're, you are may be saying, is shaped by those same forces that they simply live within. The Judaism within Christian Europe tends towards more the Let's all find the the one narrative, although I'm not sure, but maybe much more open-ended in Islamic cultures.
0: I think, you know, I'm coming up with counters, which are, oh, and I don't feel like I'm well versed enough in these sources to really be able to argue about it. But in certain times and places in Islamic cultures, there was a a huge pressure, or at least felt by some Jewish thinkers, a a theology. To try to engage with greek philosophy that had been preserved by islamic thinkers and preserved in arabic so you know you have sadia gone and then you have maimonides and they both show a tendency towards systemization that was not common among jewish writing before either of them but i mean the kind of thing that you're talking about the sort of harmonization i think of as less being about Christianity per se, although although maybe is insofar as Enlightenment modernism is post-Christianity, essentially. Um I think secularism is in fact not actually never really existed. (laughs) And that what we what has been labeled as secular culture is a lot of Christian hegemonic ideas that were like desacralized, and that's been a problem for Jews living in those cultures for a long time for a lot of reasons. But I think brisker method, kind of Talmud study, I'm like, I see that as an outcome of modernism just as much as, you know, other movements that we see coming out of like 19th century Europe.
1: Everything is a product of its surrounding cultures, whether it's embracing or rejecting it, which is a good segue into the holiday that inspired me to pursue this topic, Hanukkah, which happened a couple of weeks ago as of his recording and the big question about Hanukkah is given that it is put in the framework of the miraculous well what exactly was the miracle again and if you read all the versions of the Hanukkah story there is no one absolutely this is what it was We have all these like versions that exist nowadays side by side We've got the book of Maccabees around which there really is no miracle it's not written about in a miraculous fashion It's the story of a bunch of anti-Hellenists known as the Maccabees, who basically had been fighting a culture war in Judea, which is then cracked down upon by the local Seleucid Empire, and which then sparks a rebellion against them. And Hanukkah is celebrating then the victory of taking back the temple in Jerusalem against the Assyrian Greeks. That's one version. In Maccabees 2, Actually, it was a political victory. It was the high priest Menelaus who used normal political channels to get back Jerusalem from Antiochus the Fourth's son and his regent. And the Maccabees might have helped with restoration, but they didn't actually achieve anything. And then in our, our liturgy... The rabbis put God in there, which is a, a new thing in from the book of Maccabees and focus on the military victory as the miraculous part. And of course, the most familiar rabbinic source, which is that let's, well, let's not focus on anything military or even priest. Let's just focus on like the one cruise of olive oil that lasts eight days miraculously. You know, all these Hanukkah narratives that exist side by side and there is no one miracle of Hanukkah. So that's my original inspiration to this theme, which is we have these narratives that all exist side by side. And I really like that we have competing narratives. I often enjoy sitting in the tension that competing narratives create. I find that very energizing and interesting.
0: Yeah, it is it is interesting. And i also just been noticing i think particularly this year given like other things that are going on in the world particularly the war in israel and gaza right now and the ways that our religious narratives and particularly like hanukkah because it was being celebrated people were you know utilizing the hanukkah story or different versions of the hanukkah narrative and interpreting them in different ways like in light of events that they're happening and and then I was seeing people have conflict about the way that other people were using the Hanukkah story in one way or another saying so it's like no that's not the real meaning of Hanukkah or like that's not the real narrative and and seeing all, I mean all of this is a particularly intense version of a conversation that I have seen happen other years as well, and that, you know, people are often like, you know, Hanukkah is a minor Jewish holiday, and people are like, no, minor doesn't mean unimportant, and somebody says, it's like, nobody was celebrating Hanukkah until some people in the 19th century decided to try to revive it to compete with Christmas, and that's the only reason why anybody cares about it, and like, this is a holiday about anti-assimilation, like, this is a holiday about Jewish strength, and this is a holiday about relying on God because the miracle of the oil and depending on one's orientation, you're emphasizing one of those versions.
1: Exactly. And I really love that narrative tension. Certainly in the past few days, I've seen on social media people using Christmas as a reframing tool for the war in Gaza. I've seen posts You know, Jesus was a Palestinian and lots of posts that are fighting that narrative, which is very interesting seeing that, you know, people kind of putting narratives out like that as well. You know, the use of narrative as a framing device, very potent stuff, but that's not more about competing. It's more about the use of narrative.
0: Right. I I think it is, but I think it is about the competing narratives in that a lot of the conflict is coming out of many people's sense of certainty that they know like this is the narrative and so going back to this is the correct way to understand this narrative so going back to some of what you were saying at the very beginning around like how different understandings to the story or what the story even is can lead to conflict and so i'm just noticing that lack of resolution and people mostly not you might enjoy that sitting with that tension but i oh, think yeah. for a lot of people that's very difficult
1: oh yeah no i so said definitely it's me it's something yeah. that i particularly yeah. find energizing and provocative and interesting. You know, I said in my interview for my position at a previous pulpit, when asked about Israel and Palestine and its ongoing conflict, and I said something that I've seen reflected later, is that the, the Yomatsma'ut narrative and the Nakba narrative are, are both true. And they exist side by side because they are experienced by people As reality. And so, though you have two realities sitting side by side, which tell very different stories of of the events of 1948, and each of which radically reframe everything from then on, even before then, up until today in a very different way and i think that those competing narratives are definitely driving a lot of rhetoric and memes and social media posts and 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 and, and people speaking in general i mean they, they certainly are whether you believe that one of them is true or the other or both will definitely inform how you speak about what is happening
0: something that we had been talking about or that i had brought up in one of our conversations was that the narrative being a composite Mm -hmm. Which is that, right, thinking about an experience like the experience of 1948, depending on what data set you use, if you're a historian, you're constructing a a narrative about the events that happened, depending on, you know, every individual has a different experience Mm -hmm. and how many of those different individual stories do we collect? And gather in order to try to create a a bigger understanding of what's going on. And if you're talking about whether it's the experience of an individual soldier and like what things were like for them, or an individual person who lived in a Palestinian village who had to leave, or in any number of individual narratives like that, depending on which ones they are, everybody has their own individual story. But of course, when we're telling these bigger narratives, we're trying to create a composite, and what that composite looks is dependent on like what we choose to include or not include in it. Mm-hmm. Right, um, and, anyway. and,
1: and and we always have to edit. You can't pick everything. I mean, you mean we can't pick everything. We have to. Either consciously, or unconsciously, select and edit what we choose to put into a story to make to make to make sense of it. Otherwise, it would just be the story of everything.
0: The story of everything.
1: Yeah, which, um, is, which, which which includes everything that ever happened all the time.
0: Yes. Do we want to talk about some other examples in Jewish sources?
1: I think you see that they all like you know pick and choose different details within. So, for example, you know how even within the Hebrew Bible. What is the nature of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness? Was it an adolescent rebellious time period? Or was it a honeymoon between God and Israel? And you find both in the Hebrew Bible itself. And that's, of course, clearly picking and choosing. Book of Esther, Haman gives the king a certain narrative about this scattered people. He doesn't name them, who had different ways than most of the subjects, and they do their own thing. And could he just wipe them out? This based on a kernel of truth, but it's, you know covered in a blanket of lies. Even with Revelation, you know, Exodus 19 and 20, we have in the Midrash, this is just one example. You know, how do you? understand what happened at mount sinai on that day when god gave us the torah or when god revealed torah whatever that means i find all these words fail to actually convey anything meaningful by themselves you know and the midrash you know was it a beautiful wedding-like moment with the mountain as the wedding canopy israel as the bride god as the groom the torah as a good that's very nice Or was it God picked the mountain like a barrel over their heads and says, accept the Torah, or you'll be buried here. And they say, yes, please don't kill us. More of a coercive moment. Right. That's classic rabbinic literature. And how does one reconcile what feels like, you know an act of total love and volition or an act of not very subtle coercion. Those are very different narratives.
0: (laughs) And I would say, you know, for me, particularly that example, because there's a whole cycle of Midrash or of agada about this that talks about revelation. To me, it's not only about the versions of the story that are in direct conflict with each other, but also the sort of like rich tapestry that's created through the multi-layering of all of these different elements of the story of Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah, they talk about, right, that the angels are um, coming and you know tying crowns onto the people. It talks about the people being like moved miles and miles back and then forward. It talks about like the intensity of the experience. It plays a lot with Song of Songs, Shir Hashirim and you know sort of like the the beauty of the experience the fragrance that is emanating that's described in the song of songs it's talking about setting the scene in this very like beautiful lush loving kind of setting as is evoked by the song of songs Mm -hmm. there's like a lot of layers and intricacy there that I think so to me that may not be directly on point with this idea of like competing and conflicting narratives, maybe we want to add some complexity to what we're saying here that it's not not always just about things that are like, you know, positive negative force that there's. Mo- there's two directions that push and pull against each other, but what we're actually seeing is a broader network of things where these actually are interacting with each other in a lot of different ways from a lot of different angles. And that it's it's not always just about two things that are diametrically opposed to each other, but it sort of hits you at a little bit of a half angle, like take into consideration that version of the story. It makes me feel differently about this other one, even if it doesn't directly conflict with it. And I wonder if that could actually be a richer place or a more helpful place we're talking about different or diverging divergent narratives about events that happen about historical events about political events about current events rather than seeing it as like you know two directly opposing forces that it's more like oh these are diverging narratives and what might they contribute to our fuller understanding if we take them all in
1: Right, that the binary is essentially false. The binary is false. Right, because even, even in like the, the revelation narrative midrashim, where is it a loving, rich tapestry scene like a wedding, or is it a coercive moment of terror and awe, both have roots in the biblical narrative that they're extrapolating and developing, but it's all there. They're just kind of pointing out two different aspects of the same experience. Neither is wrong neither captures the whole experience. They have a complementariness to them, is what I'm hearing you say.
0: Yeah, in a lot of ways, marriage is coercion, at least when there isn't equality between the parties involved, um, as was the case classically in Jewish tradition, and still is for many people, and still is in the ceremony as we have it. So Mm -hmm. those two things can and do in fact, coexist quite a lot.
1: Right. It's a good point.
0: The romanticism, the romantic wedding, when I'm like, well, actually, this is a totally inegalitarian ceremony that's involving someone being purchased.
1: I was thinking what Israel owes God at that point that would be hard to say no thank you to. You're no longer slaves. How could one say no in that moment anyway? And it's interesting. The rabbis say that actually the Torah was only fully accepted in Persia.
0: With, right, exactly. With, with. The Jews in. in in the Purim story,
1: right? There's an acknowledgement that Torah was nothing but coercive until centuries and centuries later, when living in exile after having survived a near catastrophe. Only then does the Torah actually become yeah.
0: Volatile. And that's raising all kinds of really interesting questions for me to think about now because they were very very bothered by the idea that acceptance of the Torah could be coercion because if it is, if it was coercive, then how could there be any, be any legitimacy? and how could you possibly be required to continue to observe the Torah so they come up with this way of understanding things which I think could be actually a really interesting way for us to continue to think about Jewish practice and observance over time maybe something that does feel coercive or did or was in its intention or was really inegalitarian or unbalanced for example could over time shift in its meaning or intention
1: yeah Greenberg Greenberg's written a lot about that and I think that he talks about this specifically in a post-Holocaust setting where after the Holocaust the Torah is all voluntary he talks about post-Holocaust there's no more obligation it's all chosen and essentially God no longer has any moral hold on us as it were they kind of come back to like in general like Midrash in general are about these competing narratives or these divergent narratives that have this multiplicity of what any one biblical verse could mean. And yes, there's mm-hmm. like the Midrash, the narrative portions, Midrash Halakha, the legal portions, and more so in the Midrash Agadah, like the narrative, theological, poetic portions, there's this unfolding layers and layers of possibilities in terms of all of the ideas about God-torn Israel that the rabbis over centuries develop that do not have to port with one another which can be complementary and conflicting and each parts of larger composites that are very subtle and very intricate but there's no like one way that a verse has to mean
0: yeah do we want to take a look at some of our conflicting narratives that we identified in sci-fi and fantasy works? yeah
1: sure there's one series that i used to love i still love them i love them in the way you think back about a kid you had a crush on in middle school, at the time, sure, but now I'm kind of over it, which is Pierce yeah. Anthony's Incarnations of Immortality series. I found the series when I was in middle school, and he was in the middle of the series. So I read books one and two that wait one year for three, four, five, six, and seven to come out, which I did ardently. I would read them in like 12 hours, just plow through them. A year of waiting for a half day of reading. It was very quick. So he wrote these first five of the seven book series, each from the point of view of a mortal who had been given the job of something in the world. Death, time, fate, war, and nature. And the adversary was always the devil, Satan. And fans, by the end of the book five, began to demand that he write book six and seven, which he had said he wasn't going to do originally. He was going to end it after book five. And so he decides after fans complain that he has to write Satan and God's story. God is the seventh book. And so Satan, who's the enemy in all the first five books, who is clearly evil, he then had to write another narrative from Satan's point of view that completely upended everything you thought he was doing with his own particular point of view and what he, what he was actually doing. So it was a very clever book where he kind of like makes you, you think you knew what Satan was really up to, but turns out he actually, he was playing a role and he had to play in a certain way. He was actually doing something completely different. So he had to write his own countervailing narrative within his own larger narrative framework
0: right. We were talking about the Star Wars series. and I mean, really the whole thing is from the point of view of the rebels who are trying to take down the Empire as we've talked about. And then there's been maybe some different iteration with some of the new newer series that have come out that have taken you know, smaller slices of the bigger picture. But if you were, to look at this from the perspective of the empire or the emperor, you know, you had said this, like, oh, what if all he was really trying to do was try to avoid this, like, bigger threat that was looming on the horizon, and, you know, maybe it all seems terrible and oppressive, but and then I feel like you get into other kinds of arguments, which I think come up quite a lot in real life, to these utilitarian arguments, like, would it be, you know, if we could stave off this bigger crisis later on what's a little you know repression how do you evaluate or make make claims about things like that but of course right the the main point here just being that there are different perspectives here that there's you know the story is largely being told from the rebel perspective and there's there are more actors here, and they may have different things to say about it.
1: One scene in the movie Clerks in particular, that is the serious question, you know, the first Death Star, it is said, you know, was a, a completely finished military ship. So ostensibly, everybody on the ship was, you know, part of the military apparatus. And when that one blew up, you could argue that was it was during an act of war. And then the second one, which was, was under construction... You can imagine it was done through a number of civilian contractors. And then when it blew up, a lot of civilians died in Return of the Jedi. So that that one is more, much more morally problematic than the deaths on the first Death Star. There's this question, should they have even attacked? So somewhere between the Empire and the Rebels, all of those civilian deaths you know, lay at their feet. Whereas in the first one, it was black and white. It gets grayer even within front of the jedi it even gets morally gray right there the movies do not focus on it at all there's no ethical conundrum presented in the movie itself it's very clear very black and white still even though it is a morally gray area so you know star wars does begin to begin to become a little more circumspect at least narratively if not deliberately or explicitly the expanse the recent novel series and Amazon Prime series, we certainly see the people living in the asteroid belt come to understand their role in the solar system as far bigger than Earth and Mars would have them be. And that leads to a civil war between Earth, Mars, and the asteroid belt. That is the core conflict of at least the latter seasons of The Expanse. In Dune... It's it's, with the Bene Gesserit actually have been creating a narrative about a messiah figure over centuries that they've been breeding people to create. So here's where there's actually like the the intrusion of a narrative, like creation of a narrative for their own political purposes, (laughs) which is to basically take down the empire and replace it with a new emperor, which is you know whoever it might be. But there you've got this mythical narrative that they kind that they push people into to make it a reality like it doesn't have to be paul that he would be the one but it does become paul but it could have been somebody else so they could create this mythos that lays the groundwork to actually shape political reality
0: we've talked about ender's game on moral ambiguity i think we're seeing a lot of overlap between this topic and i think our our session on you know the gray but we find out i guess spoiler alert that the real no, story no of- it's
1: over they know it's <laughs> over I, I
0: mean i don't know who's listening it's like i don't want to ruin everything for you but this is Just the end of book one, right? That like all these kids who've been trained, you know, for this hypothetical battle, and then finally, you know, it's been kept secret that there is in fact this looming battle with the buggers going, and Ender, you know, thinks he's playing a game or doing a test, and he is in fact, you know, destroying their entire species, and there's those dueling realities and narratives going on but the way that Orson Scott Card continues to write the books is that many of them are dedicated to telling about several different points of view of the same events and seeing it through the eyes of different characters and and I think you know also just overall throughout the series the sense i get is that there really is this pushing back against the idea that there is this one correct narrative you know you see that through speaker for the dead as ender goes about trying to learn about and really be able to tell authentically the story of you know different entities that have died which is you know an attempt that that's quite rare for most of us to to really try to get inside and inhabit the truth of somebody else's narrative Right. And there
1: in Speakers of the Dead, they try to synthesize like all the narratives that are out there and all of the data to create a much richer sense of the Mm -hmm. person's life. Marcel Scott Card is a Latter-day Saint. And it's interesting that he really wants to push the much more complex narrative. Like the other example is like the life of the buggers. I don't know if they ever actually have a better name for them, the hive queen. Like they just couldn't communicate. They had their own internal narrative that was just in a different way of even thinking than how humans communicate. Not only were the narratives, you know, different, they couldn't even be understood by the other. There was they're mutually unintelligible, which led to their deadly conflict. But once Ender in the hive could actually kind of bridge that gap, then they're able to actually coexist. so it's, a, it's almost like the the extreme of the conflicting narrative. The matrix comes to mind. you know, the matrix is the narrative. It is like the the mother program that everyone lives in that they think is reality, but the real reality is their batteries which of course is a ridiculous thing because we're actually very very poor batteries we're not good batteries please don't do it just a little ai shout out to the future don't do it to us and the real narrative the real the, the real reality is that humans and ai just don't get along and they try to rewrite that narrative slowly over the course of four films humans and ai actually could coexist morpheus says about Neo, that they don't take people out of the matrix beyond a certain age because their minds can't accept the other narrative, the other reality. So there seems to be maybe another extreme there where when, when you think that your entire life is one narrative and you realize that everything you thought you knew is absolutely false, or at least is not externally true. You subjectively experienced everything, but none of it was actually based on reality then that's got to be a hard literally a hard pill to swallow i did not mean (laughs) these that just that just came up because it came up so So, takeaway big takeaway on on all of this i have what's yours
0: i mean i feel like we're we're more or less on the same page about this and because we had talked about it before, which is that, like, I think that Judaism, at least since Rabbinic Judaism, and people like Ben Summer would say from the, the creation of the Torah itself, where you see the sort of proto-Rabbinic
1: I agree with Ben, actually. I'm with, I, I'm with Ben on this one.
0: Yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying I oppose it, but I'm, I'm just saying it's like, I'm gonna, like, just say, make my claim from, from the Rabbinic period, is that Judaism f- fights against an attempt at creating a neat little narrative the entire the entire thing to me basically exists on the premise that there is more than one perspective that we need to engage with with them that in our most sacred texts, even in our most sacred text we see examples of conflicting ideas concepts narratives that we are invited to engage with and then the way that the rabbinic tradition and everybody who has followed in its footsteps and is continuing to respond and expand upon that is engaged in a process of not only sitting with the competing divergent narratives that we have but might also be participating actively in adding in more of them adding in additional layers adding in different layers of interpretation that move us towards greater complexity rather than simplicity
1: the narrative i kind of come back to as like a metaphor for this is the tower of babylon where there are devarim achadim. there are these singular words or the same speech unclear one language but there's this if, if you're trying to control the whole narrative there's a kind of tyranny in that and the tower of babylon is a metaphor that that is not what God wants, that there's a benefit to having more languages, to having more systems of understanding the world that tell stories that each contribute to the the larger
0: understanding. so that's interesting because I feel like you went in two different like said different things that I was going to say at different points. One was when you were t- talking about the like, Tower of Babel thing. You know, of course, it's like, oh, this is the origin of like the 70 languages and the 70 nations. Uh-huh. 70 is always being this number that represents totality. But of course, like the famous idea that there are 70 faces to, to the Torah, mm-hmm. which I think I take to mean or what came up for me as I was listening was... Uh-huh. It, And I hadn't fully articulated this for myself, I think, before, which is not only are there a lot of them, there are probably more than you can ever look at, and you cannot look at all of them simultaneously. I was thinking more about the way that an artist composes a painting or another work of art, that it's made up of different elements, that you're trying to achieve harmony through composition. And that composition does not necessarily mean that you paint a canvas with one color, like you could achieve a harmonious composition that way. And some artists in fact have done that. Roscoe could pull it off. It doesn't necessarily (laughs) mean, exactly. It does not necessarily mean that you have something that is perfectly symmetrical, but there are ways of combining all of these different elements and having them all be present that achieves harmony and balance or a sense of harmony and balance, even with the diversity that is there.
1: That's a good place to end.
0: It is. Do we wanna talk about what do we have coming up from the Geniza?
1: So there's a movie and I was thinking about it because of the movie Rebel Moon, having just been released on Netflix, which we know was a Star Wars script that Disney said no to and it became something else. I was thinking about the first time I was aware of another movie that was Directly inspired by Star Wars, which was the movie Crawl, which came out in eighty three, which is the same year The Return of the Jedi came out. So it was definitely you know in production from the time, sometime after Star Wars appeared, and then it was released the same year as Return of the Jedi. So Crawl is one of those movies that is, I think it's a classic because it is so bad, but it is so bad it is so good. It's one of those, I, I think deep cut cult classics. And basically there's a prince and a princess and they're going to get married. And I think it's like a political union, but they're actually into each other. So it works out. And the wedding ceremony is taking the flame from the fire and sharing the flame, the whole flame based ceremony thing. And of course there's this beast who is like the big bad and he kidnaps her during the wedding and people die. And he basically, it's a rescue the maiden story but he has he has to go and get this weapon called the glaive and the glaive is amazing it's like this five bladed throwing sword goes to like a volcano to get it and you know he choirs, you know people on the way to help help him fight against the beast and it's just ridiculous fantasy sci-fi crazy movie starring liam neeson and Robbie Coltrane in very young, unrecognized roles where they were not doing much. But that's okay. So, just thinking about that as a wonderful, delightful film from my childhood that was a Star Wars derivative. And I'm cool with that. Yeah, it's worth watching. If you have not yet seen it, I highly recommend watching it. I think it's a cult classic. You've got to watch Crawl at least once. Okay. I watched Crawl a lot because I had it on VHS. I watched Crawl. Dozens of times. Wow. There are cyclopses, there are wizards, there are floating beast castles, there are thieves. It's it's got a lot going on. It's got a lot going on.
0: Sounds like it. It it wasn't
1: like Star Wars. It was, but it was certainly, you know, it was certainly high fantasy on screen, which we hadn't seen a lot of at the time, you know, epic epic style storytelling like Star Wars. So it was that kind of like Star Wars inspired stuff. It's worth watching once for sure. Okay. That concludes our 10th episode (laughs) of Sacred Realms Clash of the Narratives.
0: Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this conversation about sci-fi and fantasy through a Jewish lens and come back to hear more.
1: Our next episode will come out in about one month.
0: And if you liked this episode, please leave us a positive rating or review on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you prefer to find your podcast. And thank you for all of our positive reviews and delightful emails so far.
1: This episode was written by
0: me, Rabbi Andrew Pepperstone. And me, Rabbi Lindsay Healy Pollock. This episode was recorded on Zoom and edited using Descript.
1: You can reach us with questions, comments, and suggestions at sacredrealmspodcast at gmail.com.
0: May the Mepharsham be with you.